start jump sequence terminates, Captain. Get the gravitational dampers online and open the blast aye, shield. Aye, sir. Bring us in closer. Aye, aye, sir. Moving us in on sublight drive. Extreme magnification. Aye, sir. The center of the galaxy. And there's our black hole. The experience of a lifetime, Captain. Let me put this on audio. You should be able to hear the magnetic resonance This is it, ladies and gentlemen. The edge of time and space where the impossible can happen. Welcome to the event horizon. Good morning, or afternoon, or evening, whatever is relevant for the part of the world you are in. Indeed, welcome to the Event Horizon, where the impossible happens. Join us each week at this time as we delve into the worlds of science fiction, fantasy, and science fact in all their forms. I'm your host, Gene Turnbull. And I'm your other host, Susan Fox. And with us is David Lucarelli, who is the creator of Tinseltown. And the it's a comic, it's a graphic novel series. No, it's a comic book series that has been turned into a graphic novel. And now there's a new comic book series, uh, which is this, the, the, a continuation of it, five, uh, five books. Uh, and it's uh, Tinseltown Losing the Light. We have just zoomed through Losing the Light. Oh, okay. Oh, my freaking God, it's good. Well, holy, thank you. We like this a great deal. Well, thank you so much. You've grown since uh, the last time we've spoken, you know? Uh, as, as an artist, as a writer. Yeah. Oh, well, yeah, I'm not producer. the artist. I'm just the writer. But, well, but, but I'll, writing, I'll is writing, writing is art. Writing is Writing is art. Producing the story is art. And it is freaking fantastic. We have both zoomed through it. <laughs> and, uh, oh, my God, I want to see this as a movie. You, Welcome to the much, show. How much work would Thank it? You. How much work would it be? You've already got the uh, storyboard. <laughs> that's right. That's it's, right. Well, from your lips to God's ears. It's it's like a, a '50s movie about early Hollywood, way edgier than Singing in the Rain. Or '40s, I think. Yeah, 1940s? about 1915, 1916. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah it was yeah. not '40s. Oh, 15s, <laughs> you said. I, yeah. see. I say a '50s movie. I'm thinking Singing in the Rain was made in 1952. Uh-huh. And but it was about you know the, oh I see the, the days of the silence and the, the oh I get it okay the early Hollywood and and the craziness then and so, uh, you 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 took a lot of your uh, uh, scene setups and staging and character arcs and this kind of thing I mean it all it all feels very authentic to the time T- tell us about t- I here we are nattering on about your stuff and you haven't said anything <laughs> I can't I can't let you get over an edge edgewise. Why don't you tell us about the books? Sure. So, so Tinseltown is a period crime drama uh, about one of the first female police officers in Hollywood. Uh, it is set in 1915, 1916, the silent film era. It's been likened to L.A. Confidential meets Boardwalk Empire. Um, and it, there are two volumes in the series – both of which are director's cuts. So they collect the five issues in the Alterna miniseries, but then they also expand them slightly. There's five additional pages of comic story in each and some additional pinups. And uh, actually in Losing the Light, uh, volume two, there's going to be an introduction by Tony Isabella, who is the creator of Black Lightning. Yes. Wow. 
That is wow. <laughs> this is this is great stuff. Yeah. Uh, the, we've, I don't know about you know how how relevant is that going to be because there was like no black people in this <laughs> in this comic. Well, that's well not, there's there's Billy. Yeah. Oh, I guess. Yeah, there are. You know, I yeah. mean, it's not, it, but it, it's not. Uh, it's not the centerpiece of the story. It's just no. it just happens to be, uh, you know, like real life. It's this racially mixed bunch of people from all over the world and, f- and all there for different reasons not all of which have to do with filmmaking as ostensibly one would would believe since it's all about utopia studios yes yes well one of the themes in, in losing the light is that of identity you know and, and the reasons why people change their names obviously actors come out to Hollywood and change their names oftentimes to fit better under marquee or uh, hide their ethnic origins, and then you have spies. Obviously, uh, it takes place during the backdrop of the First World War, and so you have spies that have secret identities. And then, of course, women who get married would be the third category, and we sort of touch upon all those. I really, really liked the artwork. The 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 art just. There's so much about this to like. It's just hard to know. where It's like the world's biggest hamburger. It's hard to know where to take the first bite. Okay, um, well, we can start with the artwork. The artist is Henry Ponciano. Um, he is a Filipino artist, and we've been working together for about 10 years now. Um, we started out working on the Children's Vampire Hunting Brigade, which is a three-volume series that's also available through the Kickstarter um, for Tinseltown. And Henry was great 10 years ago, and he just keeps getting better with every page, every panel that he does. Uh, it's, it's been a very satisfying, creative uh, relationship. He is a master. He is just a master of the pencil. Uh, the, this guy's style is... Uh, uh, I mean, this is this is Eisner level, you know, Eisner Award level stuff. Well, thank you. If kind you know of, anybody of, on the committee, kind <laughs> of kind of to. Will Eisner, you know, with the period piece and the crime drama and the noir and all that, you know. Oh yeah, I love I love the fact that it's basically a noir setting. Yeah, you know, and yeah, it is it is noir, and uh, Henry's great at drawing. He can draw very realistically when he wants, but he can also. Um, it's also stylized. Sometimes I feel like he's channeling a little Dave Stevens mm-hmm. in his work. And, uh, yeah, he's just he's he's a master of, of capturing the moment, the right facial expression, and, and drawing ordinary people that look like real people. Yeah, and capturing the style and the fashion of the time. I mean, everything just fits. It's like uh, uh, you had an art director looking at all of this going... No, this this costume would be more like this or that, and you know, and all the research has been done, and it all feels real. It all feels right. Yeah, we did a lot of research into this. Um, I'm sure we didn't get everything right, but you know, we wanted to present an, a consistent uh, world that was believable. So I did everything from taking the Hollywood walking tours to um, reading all kinds of books about the story of Hollywood and uh-huh. uh, be- because this story touches on uh, the world of espionage there's a great book by Howard Bloom called Dark Invasion mm-hmm. that uh, talks about uh, some of the earliest examples of espionage and terrorism in the United States from that era and uh, also the intertwining of the mob and the entertainment industry 
I read books like L.A. Noir and uh, coincidentally Tinseltown, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> which are all based upon those those ideas. So the lead character in the story, Abby, she is the yeah. first woman policeman in. Well, not not in in the L.A. Not in L.A., but she's she's uh, she works as basically studio security, and that's the best yeah. way to describe her. And yeah, so that was inspired by some some real life history. Um, Universal Studios around that period was kind of a proto feminist organization in that they had a female mayor, police chief, police officers who functioned as a cross between lot security guards and people there to assist and amuse the tourists. And they weren't the only studio uh, that had female police officers. Actually, in doing research for the second one, I found out D.W. Griffith Studio did too. Um, they would primarily use them as kind of school marms who would. Um, you know, keep track of all the extras, make sure they weren't getting to any hanky-panky in between takes and things like that. Los Angeles actually had some female police officers at the time because even back then there were teenage female runaways, prostitutes, and drug addicts, and and the men didn't feel comfortable uh, doing strip searches and things like that with them. But they were very limited, which is why in in our book, uh, Abigail Moore, the daughter of a fallen police officer, ends up auditioning to be a police officer at Utopia Studios. And although she's not completely a real policewoman, she does uncover some real crimes in both the books. And uh, I should mention, too, my mother was a police officer, uh, Miriam Lucarelli, for 20-plus years in Pittsburgh. So this book is also kind of my tribute to her. Well, it, it gives you some grounding as well. You know, you know a little bit about what the process was like and some of the ridiculous stuff she had to go through as a woman police officer. Yeah, it wasn't easy for her then. And so, you know, I extrapolated back to how hard it must have been for some of the, the first uh, female police officers, for sure. But yeah, I definitely I definitely draw upon some of that. And uh, I will continue to throughout the series. I love the fact that uh, she's in a police officer's uniform and it's a it's a, a studio and but the, it's the a whole... little tight and it's a little sexy and the, well, the yeah. skirt's a little short, but that's Hollywood, right? But but, it, but the whole thing is about the studio is all about appearances, and what lies beneath the surface is different than what you see, and your yes. whole your both of your stories, uh, Tinseltown and Tinseltown, losing the light, are uh, centered on that conflict. Yes, yes. And um, I, I think that not everything in Hollywood is what it seems. If you go to the LAPD Police Museum and you see the, the actual uniforms uh, that, they, that the real police officers were wearing, the female ones, they didn't have a budget for uniforms. So they looked more like burlap sacks. You know, <laughs> they were kind of gray or, or, you know, off brown. And uh, they looked very uncomfortable. But Universal was not above marching uh, their female police officers in short skirts and parades to appear to more prurient tastes. So mm-hmm. hence, that's that's why their uniforms were a, a little bit more svelte. Yeah, it's just a delightful slice. And, and you have one scene where a director who is not what he seems is having trouble covering for the fact that he doesn't know how to direct a damn movie. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> I love that. Little, it, 
it's a little hard to talk about uh, some of the plot points in the second one because I don't want to give too much right. away. But, but basically, in losing the light, there's there's a series of accidents that are ha- happening across the lot that are troubling the productions. And one of the big stars of Utopia Studios gets involved in a scandal, and there are protests and calls for her films to be banned. And all of a sudden, the studio is a couple weeks away from not being able to make payroll. And along comes this German director who uh, says, hey, I've got the answer. I've got this big costume drama. We can film it down in Mexico. And... uh, and it's going to be the answer to all of your problems. And, you know, much like in life when everything seems too good to be true, it probably is. So Abigail gets assigned to sort of babysit the production. And spoiler alert, all hell breaks loose. Nothing is quite what it seems. And she will emerge from her adventure in Mexico a changed woman. Yeah, and you aren't kidding. I mean, it's you don't go light on the nothing is as it seems trope. <laughs> Absolutely nothing is as it seems. There's yeah. this whole this whole world that you've set up, you know, within the context of the story. These are the things that everybody sees. And then right under the surface, in some cases, or n- under two surfaces, there's a second reality and then a third in some cases. And it's it all ties back together into a wonderful plot. And it's really kind of impressive. That is some difficult storytelling. Well, thank you. Thank, thank you. Um, the, the, the director's cut version is pretty much what you guys read. Where There's one sequence that we're going to probably expand by a couple of pages because what happens is once you start decompressing a story a little bit, uh, it's like a balloon. You know, <laughs> it feels like, okay, now we're rushing this, this part of it. But yeah, for, for a story that has a lot of moving plates, I think it, I think it comes together rather well. Yeah, I, I think so, too. How long did it take to develop the storyline for this new series of books? It's Again, it's, it's five comic books being published as a trade paperback. Yeah, five comics plus uh, the, the story Pinboy, which is kind of a connective story between the first, uh, first volume and the second. Um, it, it took a long time for the, the five books to come out, partially because they started coming out before the pandemic, and then that sort of delayed production uh, with, with Alterna a little bit. But, um, but you know, it's all, it's all done and in the can now. Yeah, so developing the story itself, what kind of a process was that for you? Um, I did a lot of research, a lot more research for the second one than I, I did for the first, and that was... You know, like I said, um, reading all kinds of books about the history of of the mob and Hollywood and early um, early studios. You know, it, it there was a small window during the early stages of Hollywood where there was actually a lot of upward mobility that was available for women and people of color. Not because society wasn't sexist and racist, but because it was an industry that was growing so incredibly fast that it was an all-hands-on-deck kind of situation. And that kind of openness and opportunity didn't last very long, but it, it was an interesting period while it, while it happened. Oh, yeah. Like uh, somebody comes up with a good idea and we've got nobody else to direct it. How about you? You know, exactly. That sort of thing. And people did were thrown into happen. 
thrown into situations where they had absolutely no background in it, and they had to make it up as they went. Well, yeah. You know, Ida Lupino managed to step up, but who else, have, you know, who else can you think of, you know? Well, like, there's a fascinating book that I read um, called Adventures with D.W. Griffith uh, by Carl Brown, and he was sort of became D.W. Griffith's right-hand man uh, and started off in the industry with no experience and you know they were kind of making it up as they went along in terms of figuring out how to do special effect shots and they would just take a camera out to the ocean and figure out things like forced perspective on the fly and do test shots and you know um, all the stuff we take for granted now Exactly, exactly. And, they were inventing and cinema then. The ones that, that were able to put in the hard work and get it right found themselves with careers. Yeah, that's pretty awesome. So the Kickstarter is, how many weeks in are we? Uh, we're about at the halfway point, and mm-hmm. we're 79% funded. So, you know, fingers crossed. <laughs> I think we're going to get there. Yeah, it's if you're 79% funded and you're only halfway through, it looks like, it feels like you're going to cross the finish line. Yes. Have to put some put some gas in the in, you know, step on the step on the gas pedal uh in that's the last right. week, right? <laughs> yes, work. that's what usually happens is you have a big bump right out of the gate and then it kind of goes slowly but surely until about the last week and then it starts to pick up with a slightly smaller bump. So you went for a 4 week campaign or, or five yeah weeks? 30 days that's that's kind of what they recommend and you know it is kind of stressful i don't know if you guys have run kickstarters but it's it's like yeah. working oh, yeah. a, f- a full-time job it's it's uh luckily i'm unemployed because of the strike but <laughs> oh boy what is it that you do during the during uh, your regular so my day job is i'm an adr mixer oh okay uh, oh right. that's yeah. right you work for a major studio well, I did. Or work you for, did. <laughs> I did work for Fox, and mm-hmm. and more recently, I've been working for, for the last couple of years. I've been working for a place in Hollywood called Periscope Post and Audio, mm-hmm. but I still go back and forth between there and Fox if, if Fox needs me for something too. So, um, but it's it's a cool job. It's a cool day job. I get to work with top directors and writers and producers and actors, and they come in to redo or add or change their lines of dialogue and post production, and I help record them. And, um, you know, I think doing it for 20 plus years has arguably given me a pretty good uh, ear for writing good dialogue. Yeah, I can see where it would. You hear it all, don't you? Yeah, or at least I hear them trying to fine tune it so that it it makes sense and it's it's said as well as it possibly can be. And you get to hear the difference between what looks great on paper and what actually sounds good, which are not always the same thing. That's true. That's true. And then, you know, I've I've had the privilege of working with certain actors that are just on a whole other level. And, you know, guys like um, Al Pacino, who can do a throwaway line like keep the change and he can say it 30 times in a row. And each time is great and usable and keepable, but different than the other 29. Wow. That's craft. <laughs> that's fun stuff. Yeah. So your campaign ends when? Uh, end of the month. Uh-huh. Yeah, so and, midnight, uh, May 31st. Uh-huh. And when it's finished, uh, I, I, it, from what we saw, the art and the writing and the lettering and the inking and all of that stuff looked basically done. Yes. 
it is 99.9% in the can. And uh, so, you know, I built in a long time. We're, we're, we're not promising delivery until November, um, only because I, I had a situation where I ran a Kickstarter before uh, with a publishing a printing company that was recommended to me uh, that managed to ship that book nine weeks late. So I, yeah. I just want to make sure that, you know, in this, these days of supply chain issues that I don't promise anything that I can't deliver and in fact over deliver on. And that gets me to the other point, which is you've got all of the creative stuff in the can before yes. the Kickstarter finishes. And that's not always true of these comic book projects. No, no. I mean, more or less. Like I said, there's a couple pages that we may expand. It, it doesn't really change the, the book. It's more about making the panels bigger so that they go across, say, three pages instead of one, you know. Mm -hmm. But, uh, again, that's just because I, I feel like the I want the pacing of the book to be exactly where where it needs to be and alterna was very generous the fifth issue um there's extended uh, they allowed me to extend the page count to i think 28 29 pages this will just extend it a little bit more have you been thinking about this as a screenplay i mean how how close is a comic book script to a movie script in terms of something like this yeah, I'd like to uh, turn it into a screenplay. Um, that's definitely some. A lot of people have said that they think that that uh, Tinseltown might make a good movie or TV series, and that's definitely something I'm going to pursue. Um, but I'm also thinking about the third volume in the series. I have a general idea of where I want the series to go there, and uh, it's going to be called Tinseltown Lady Killer. Ooh, and I it's already gonna... like it. <laughs> oh, thank you. I already like uh, it. And, you know, it has to do, it's going to be kind of an examination of the nature of fame, um, both the good side to fame, that it can afford people freedom and people to look up to, um, but also the dark side of, of fame, where you have people that behave in abominable ways and abuse that, that power and that privilege, and you have uh, the dark side where you have obsessed fans that can uh, turn on on those stars in a dime and become very dangerous. And then you also, the other two ways to get famous in America uh, are to be an outlaw and a killer. And no, at no point in time did those those all those types of fame come together in one place more so than around 1917 Hollywood. It was a real pot boiler of a time in history, especially in cinematic history. Yeah, yeah. It was, I mean, really the studios sprang up like overnight shanty towns. And Los Angeles went from being this idyllic countryside of orange groves and uh, <clears throat> river to, to being really an industry town that... Um, was making money hand over fist so fast they didn't know what to do with it all. Well, and a big part of why they came out to Los Angeles in the first place, apart from the weather, was to get as far the hell away from Thomas Edison as they could possibly get. Yes, because Edison was not above not only suing them for uh, what he thought was infringements on his patents, but also hiring thugs to go and literally smash up their film cameras. So, yeah, that there we we touch upon that in uh, in Tinseltown as well. That's fascinating stuff. I've been in the motion picture industry myself since I was about uh, 23 
Oh, I, what do you do, Gene? Oh, well, I, uh, I started out as a sculptor, but mm -hmm. I did practical effects and mechanical effects. I did prop making. Uh, I've done costume work. Uh, I've spent 10 years in a motion picture animation studio. Mm -hmm. um, and now, I, of course, I run this radio station, which is like tangential sure. to pretty much everything else going on in Hollywood. Uh, but you're starting to make your own promotional videos, so yeah, I'm, you're circling I'm, yeah, back. I'm, I'm circling back and doing animations and, and stuff like that. Did an animated web series four years ago. Oh, very cool. You know, very stuff cool. like that. Yeah, so, well, hopefully uh, my depiction of, of the, the lots and the studio culture rang, rang true to you. It did, very much. Good. I, Good. I, spent, I spent a lot of time, when I was in my practical effects days, uh, I spent a lot of time haunting the various various major studios and and uh working in and around the union shops and this kind of thing so yeah oh yeah it felt absolutely just spot on it was oh. you captured the flavor just very much fantastic well thank you for that um yeah it's funny because i actually one of the creative projects i want to do after i finish this kickstarter is a uh, short horror film I, I wrote and directed a play last year called Crude, which uh, we had a couple sold-out runs as part of the Hollywood Fringe Fest. And in fact, there's a pay-per-view version of this play that's available as part of the Kickstarter. But I had such a good time working with the cast, they all said to me, hey, Dave, you should you should put us in a movie. And I thought to myself, hmm, maybe I should. It's getting a lot easier to do it now, too. I mean, the, the tools that are available are just just blow me away in terms of what's what's possible now on your on your desktop i mean even yeah. even over just a year ago well you and i may have to talk off the radio show about that because i i'm certainly uh would be eager to to have your advice and and opinions about that sort of thing yeah well it's uh, a lot of it touches on artificial intelligence and uh, graphics generation and this kind of thing sure. and, and how that whole thing is turning into a big uh, disorganized fumbling threshing ball of arms and legs that nobody can figure <laughs> out yeah no I know AI is both incredibly exciting and incredibly scary I know comic book artists are freaking out about it I'm freaking out about it um, I, I think that the potential of what it can do is very exciting, but you know also what it what it means for artists, writers, technicians. Mm -hmm. um, it's really a great unknown at this point. Well, yeah, the, but, the unions and producers are going to have to figure it out within weeks of now, in order to set up some kind of uh, precedent for the future. Because <laughs> if, because if they don't do it now, the windows the window will close, and that will be that will be it. And it's, yeah, there's no there's no fixing it after this. So no, we have to I do know. it right now. They will. I mean, you know, one way or another. It, it yeah. Maybe it may be all the rest of the summer, but they'll they'll thrash it. Yeah, out. but now meaning basically this season, we have to do it before before things get too much further along. Yeah, because, I think so. Yeah, because our 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 copyright laws and our uh, our trademark laws and this kind of thing are not set up for this. No, uh, and, they and really they, aren't. They especially do not. If you can't. <laughs> yeah. yeah, they do. They don't protect artists or writers mm -hmm. very well. They don't protect anybody, really. Thank you very much for joining us on this episode of the Event Horizon here on Sci-Fi Radio. It's been a pleasure having you. Well, thank you very much. It's great to talk to you guys again. 
You have been listening to episode 260 of Sci-Fi.Radio's weekly production of The Event Horizon for Saturday, May 20th, 2023. Our guest this evening has been writer and comic book producer David Lucarelli. We have been discussing his new trade paperback in the Tinseltown series, Losing the Light. This episode will air again at 4 p.m. Pacific, 7 p.m. Eastern tomorrow afternoon, and two more times on the following Thursday and Saturday mornings at 4 a.m. Pacific, 7 a.m. Eastern. Once all of the airtimes have passed, you will find this episode as a podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, Pandora, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, and on our own website at sci-fi.radio. Sci-Fi.Radio is listener-supported Sci-Fi Geek Culture Radio, and the vast majority of our funding comes from listeners just like you. If you enjoy programming like what you just heard, we ask you to please visit patreon.com slash sci-fi radio and pledge five or ten dollars a month to help keep the station on the air. That's patreon.com slash sci-fi radio. The Event Horizon title sequence was written and produced by Gene Turnbow. The science officer was played by science fiction illustrator Mark Schurmeister. The engineer was Christian B. McGuire. The navigator was Christine Cherry. And the captain was voiced by science fiction grandmaster Larry Niven. This episode of The Event Horizon is copyright 2023 by Krypton Media Group Incorporated. The Event Horizon on Sci-Fi.Radio. It's sci-fi for your Wi-Fi. <laughs>